What a wonderful truth that we were able to sing that as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we, no matter what our sin was or is, we stand forgiven at the cross. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our study of Ephesians as we continue studying Ephesians chapter 5. I pray that you've had a blessed week. Now, we have been slowly making our way through the fifth walk statement of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. Now, this section, I would argue, is incredibly helpful in showing us how to wisely live the Christian life. I'm convinced, actually, that an understanding of this passage of Scripture will help you live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. The Lord Jesus, that is. Have you ever wondered how to know the Lord's will for your life? Say you're making a big decision about who you'll marry. Or maybe if you're older, you're trying to help your children know who to marry. Or maybe you're trying to make some important financial decision. Just in the past couple of weeks, I've had several folks come to me with concerns like those concerns. As we approach difficult decisions or forks in the road, how do we then discern the Lord's will for our lives? How do we confidently live before God knowing that we are squarely in the Lord's will? Really, I, I'm certain this is a huge question for many, if not all of you. I believe the Apostle Paul answers this for the church at Ephesus in chapter 5, verse 17, where we find ourselves today. As a matter of fact, he says, understanding the Lord's will and His will for us, understanding His will for us, His Lord, the Lord's will and His will for us, is a huge part of wise living. In other words, it is foolish to live as if God will doesn't matter. Now let me pray for the sermon, and let's read the passage as we get started. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and let me pray, and then we'll read the passage. Gracious Lord, we come to you again this morning asking that you would bless this time, this time of preaching, Father, I pray that you would bless the hearer, that your Holy Spirit would move within our hearts this morning as we hear your word taught and expounded upon. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength this morning, clarity of mind, and Father, that I would decrease as you increase. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read Ephesians 5, 15-21. Paul writes, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, 
but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now I'm sure that most, if not all of you, are familiar with the story of Peter Pan. He was the fictional boy who never wanted to become a man. In the story, Peter flies around with a nonchalant, devil-may-care attitude. He has little to no responsibility in life, and he desperately wants it to stay that way. He constantly puts himself into harm's way due to his outward self-confidence, even his cockiness. Peter mostly lives in Neverland, where he's the leader of the Lost Boys, which is a band of youth who went to live in Neverland together with, with Peter. They'd been lost by their parents. Now, Peter Pan's name comes from Peter Davies, one of the boys who inspired the story, and the Greek deity Pan. Now, this is interesting. Peter Davies was a tragic individual who carried on a relationship with a woman 27 years older than himself. She actually had a daughter who was older than Peter. Now, interestingly enough, the god Pan, the Greek god Pan, is part goat and part human. Now, it is believed that Pan represents man's natural state, unencumbered by the effects of civilization and, of course, upbringing. So, therefore, Peter Pan is a free spirit. He is too young to be burdened with the effects of education or to have an adult appreciation of moral responsibility. You might say that he is betwixt and between. He can fly and speak the language of fairies and birds. Peter Pan is part animal and part human. Now, there's a phenomenon in Western culture called the Peter Pan Syndrome. Young folks are taking longer and longer to grow into adults. This can be seen in the average age of marriage. From 1890 to 1979, the average age for marriage for women hovered between 20 and 22. But in 1980, the average age took a decided turn upward. And in 2018, the average age for the woman to be married was 28 years old. For men, the low was actually around 22 years in 1956. By the mid-70s, the average age began to rise to about 30 years old in 2018. No doubt, uh, many would argue that, the greater, that greater opportunities and college education has contributed to this rise. But I think there may be some greater influences at play here. This cultural phenomenon is also called, what, failure to launch. There's even a popular movie that was titled this way. I didn't watch it, but I saw it. In part, saw that it exists. In part, I didn't watch it, but I saw that it exists. In part, this, this is caused by the number of young men who are afraid to take the necessary steps toward full adulthood, including marriage and children. At this point, you may get the image of a, of a man-child living in the basement attached to what? Video games. Yet I would suggest that there may be something more to consider. Quite frankly, I'm concerned that even Christian parents are not teaching their children how to discern God's will for their lives. 
More and more parents are making every decision for their children. They decide or heavily influence every aspect of their children's lives. They decide their education, all the way through even their post-grad work. They, they decide who they will date and who they will marry. They, distri- they decide their career direction. Now let me be crystal clear. As parents, I'm, I'm going to slow down here for a second. As parents, you should be involved in these decisions. You should be helping your kids along the way. But here's the main problem. Here's the main problem. In our haste to ensure that our children get the best of the best, we forget that it is more critical to teach our children how to discern for themselves God's will for their lives. We never want to see them fail, but we have failed. Did you you catch that? We never want to see them fail, but we have failed to remember that God teaches His children through failure as we try to understand His will. I would argue that in part, this is because the parents themselves are not modeling how to understand God's will. Therefore, children are remaining under mom and dad's directions even into their 30s, 40s, and some even into their 50s. Therefore, many of our young adults end up spinning their wheels for years as they try to make the leap to full adulthood. They never grow into full maturity because they're not forced to discern God's will. Tragically, their parents have not taught them because they themselves don't understand the will of God. They don't understand the will of God because they're not students of His Word. Friends, there's nothing more tragic than a Christian who has little to no understanding of God's will. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that understanding the will of God is integral to walking in wisdom. In other words, you cannot truly walk in wisdom unless you know how to understand God's will. Well, this must have been a problem for the church at Ephesus as well. Evidently, there were some among them who had strayed and turned back to the darkness of their unbelief. It seems that these folks were trying to convince others to do the same. They were saying, hey, you can live in the darkness and still have an inheritance in the kingdom. But Paul understood that this is not the will of God for the Christian. And he wanted them to recognize this for themselves. So two weeks ago, we began to slowly walk through this fifth and final walk command of chapters 4 through 6. Now this section, which started in 5.15, runs all the way through 6.9, and that's important to understand that we're in one big section of of this text. A couple of sermons ago, we studied verse 15, where Paul called the church at Ephesus to be careful, to carefully watch how they walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. As Christians, we need to have our eyes wide open as we seek to walk wisely in these evil days. Satan and the, the, the demonic realm has so much control over this world, and we see it every day, and we're seeing it more and more as time goes on. Now, Paul gives four instructions. Four instructions. We've been walking through these slowly. Four instructions for walking wisely during these evil days. We saw first last week, you must redeem your weeks closely. Put simply, we need to redeem the time. We need to snap up every opportunity to serve the Lord. And in doing so, we must not think temporarily of the here and now, but temporally that of the here and now, but eternally. 
We must live according to a heavenly time frame. According to God's time frame, not an earthly one. Our days are numbered and we have a mission to fulfill in making disciples of the nation. Some in the church in Ephesus were in danger of forgetting this truth. Their lives didn't reflect the truth that they had been placed into the body of Christ whose purpose it is to make more disciples. Therefore, they were wasting their time on fruitless endeavors. Now, secondly, the second instruction that Paul gives in verse 17. He says, this is the second instruction for walking wisely during these evil days. You must recognize Yahweh's will conscientiously. Look at your text in 17. Paul writes, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, we need to look at Paul's intention for the first phrase. Then we need to try to understand how this verse relates to the preceding verses. Now, before I get into this, I should remind you, or this part here, I I should remind you that your English translations are a gift from God for which many men shed their blood to hand down to you. They are faithful translations, but sometimes there are nuances in the Greek that don't always translate well into your English text. I would argue this is one such instance. In this case, the English does not, in my opinion, translate Paul's force. The Holman Christian Standard Bible tries to bring out the nuance I'm talking about by saying in this first phrase, so don't be foolish. So don't be foolish. They use the contraction, don't, to bring out the force of the command. But I think that the force that Paul is using is better understood by the translation, so stop being foolish. In other words, I think Paul is telling them in no uncertain terms to stop their foolishness. And this fits with the structure of the letter. Paul spent the first three chapters reminding the church of God's will in Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, it says, He made known, that it would be the Lord, made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. So the Lord made known the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ, that is, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. In these verses, Paul argues that the Father has made His will to be known to the church. And in one eleven, he reminds them that God works all things, including our salvation after the counsel of His will. He doesn't look to anyone else. He doesn't reason with anyone else. Everything happens according to His will. Now let me put this, put this together for you. There were some at the church at Ephesus who were being pulled back into the world's foolishness. No doubt this was adversely affecting their walk with Christ. Clearly, that was not God's will for them in Christ. Therefore, in 5.17, Paul simply says, commands them to stop being foolish. Now let me give you further reasoning for this interpretation. Last week, one of the ladies told me that they were wrestling with the meaning of the last part of verse 16, the days are evil. She told me that she was hoping for a a good explanation of that phrase and that I really didn't get into it. Well, I bring up her question because I believe that particular phrase 
is critical to understanding Paul's point in verse 17. The NASB starts the verse with, So, so, so then, do not be foolish. The word in the English actually translates a two-word clause in the Greek text. Now, I think the NA, that the NASB actually ca- captures that idea, but I believe the Net Bible is a better translation here. The, the New English translation translates this phrase, for this reason. Now, I think that translation helps us see that Paul is referencing the reason they need to understand the will of the Lord. Therefore, we think, when we think through, we need to think through Paul's argument to know that reason. Now, most commentators believe that Paul is referencing back to verse 15, where he tells them to watch carefully how they walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, that interpretation actually makes some sense. You could argue that in verses 15 and 16, Paul reasons with them, reasons with them that they must walk in wisdom, making the most of their time. They do this because the days are evil. Then in verse 17, he more forcefully tells them to stop being foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Said said another way, he's saying it is foolish to live as if you don't understand God's will. Now, let me say this, though. I think there's maybe another nuance here that I want to bring out. In verse 16, Paul says that the reason that we are to make the most of our time is that the days are evil. Therefore, in verse 17, I think he more specifically is pointing back to the urgency of living with eternity in view. In other words, if we understand the will of the Lord, then we will realize the urgency of the gospel and the reality of suffering during these evil days. <clears throat> now we need to look deeper into the phrase, the days are evil. First, last week, as the young lady came to me said, I didn't really address the idea of days. I believe that Paul ter- uses this term to bring out his emphasis on the Christian's use of time. Days and time go together, right? In other words, don't waste time doing unfruitful things because your time doing good things but, because, but use your time, that is, doing good works during these days. <coughs> he emphasizes this by saying that much evil is being done during these days. You see, we're in a constant spiritual battle with the forces of darkness. Therefore, as a church, we can't waste time. Now, last week, I also pointed back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and said that these verses indicate that this world is under the temporary control of Satan and his demonic realm. Now, in God's providence, the devil's time, again, the emphasis on time, the devil's time is actually very limited, but the world, (coughs) excuse me, but the world has been given over to him for this short time. Now, let me help you see what I believe Paul is saying. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul tells the church at Ephesus that God has shown mercy on them and has raised them up and seated them in the heavenly places in Christ. And in Ephesians 2.10, he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. So God has saved us unto good works that we would walk in them. Said another way, it is foolish to walk as the Gentiles walk. Now, 
In Ephesians 3.8, he writes this. He says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Then in verse 10, it says this. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now here's the connection, and 310 is the key to this. The church, beloved you, the church, the church is a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, to those who are currently in control of this world, we are a demonstration that God has actually won through Christ. And I would argue that this includes Satan in the entire demonic realm. Because of his control, the days are evil. Therefore, the saints are to stop being foolish and start living according to God's will for them. And when the church does this, when it walks with Christ in good works, it fully demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God through the church to Satan and his followers. We demonstrate that Christ has conquered sin and death, not only for himself, but for his people. And when we wisely walk in the works that God has prepared for us in Christ, we clearly show that Christ has won the war. And we have nothing to fear. Have you ever wondered why the military wears uniforms? Well, if they showed up for battle in civilian clothes, nobody would take them seriously. They would look like they lacked training and discipline, right? The enemy wouldn't take them seriously because of that lack of discipline. In the same way, do you think the devil takes seriously any saint who walks in the darkness? Who is unprepared? He certainly doesn't take seriously any church which does not adorn themselves in the gospel. Beloved, we must live by faith and walk in the victory of Christ, and that is Paul's point here. In the words of Dwight L. Moody, he says this, Take your stand on the rock of ages. Let death, let judgment come. The victory is Christ and yours through Him. Now, based on based on these truths, I'm saddened when I see Christians live like the world. I am incredibly disappointed when I see Christians living in foolishness. I'm especially disappointed when I see entire churches walking in foolishness. How can we live foolishness, foolishly that is, how can we be foolish if we realize, if we fully realize what God has done for us in Christ? In Romans 8.35, Paul asked the church in, in Rome, he says, who will bring a, a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who intercedes for us? In verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It goes on, just as for you, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So how can we walk in foolishness when we know this truth? And if these things are true, and they are, then as a church, we must not be foolish. We must, in Paul's words, stop the foolishness. Now let me bring this closer to home. This past year should be eye-opening for the Christian. Even, even in this past week, it's crazy. I, I, I stand here at times and I think it can't get, it, it, we can't continue to have these weeks of news like we have. But just this past week, there were a few events which deserve our attention. One seems rather innocuous in some ways. It's that Grace Community Church announced, this is that's John MacArthur's church, announced that they were postponing the annual Shepherds Conference. In their announcement, they said this, in light of our ongoing litigation and recent threats from the county of Los Angeles and the state of California, did you hear that? In light of recent threats from the county of Los Angeles and the state of California, we have decided that the most prudent course of action at this time is to postpone the Shepherds Conference. Now, no matter where you stand on the COVID-19 issue, it is chilling. It should, you, you should, it should chill you that the state would actually interfere with the church. It should, it's chilling. The second occurrence, along the same lines, happened in Canada. The pastor of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, who is a TMS grad, was arrested because the church he pastors continues to meet in obedience to Christ. Again, no matter where you stand on the issue of COVID-19, it is difficult to imagine that a pastor in a Western country would be arrested for his church to gather on the Lord's Day. It should be, it's, it's chilling. The third situation involves a report which came out concerning Ravi Zacharias, which I think Phil mentioned earlier. It's, the report states that, his, that during his ministry, he made several unwanted sexual advances toward women who were not his wife. The report is concerning because Ravi was an internationally known apostle. As far as we can tell, Ravi spent most of his time traveling the world. Therefore, it seems that he was not in regular fellowship in a local church. Therefore, it seems that there was very little accountability for him. Let this be a warning. Let this be a warning for those who struggle with the local church. If you struggle with the local church, God has designed the church for His glory and our good. You avoid accountability in the church at your peril. But let me say this. Reports like these are incredibly damaging to the body of Christ. Having said that, let me tell you something that you need to know and understand. The world will be crafty in its attacks on the church. They will, re they will use reports like this to say that pastors are charlatans. They will 
all pastors. They will paint a, bro a broad brush, and, and if you don't believe me, watch. They will paint a broad brush and say that all pastors who are supported by the church are in it for monetary gain, for sexual favors, and or power. Mark my words, that's what's coming. As a matter of fact, a fourth incident happened this week. So that, this, count it, four. Four huge things. John MacArthur was the subject of a, an article this past week as well. This piece gives the rundown of John MacArthur's estate. It also chronicles his family and the government governance of Grace to You, the Masters University, and TMS. Now, it doesn't say as much about Grace Community Church because the church is more considered to be more private. Let's just say that the author was not flattering in her assessment of his financial situation. And she certainly was not charitable in her evaluation of John MacArthur's life and ministry. Beloved, believe me, the world is coming after us, and they will hit us where it hurts. Now, let me say this. Pastors and prominent Christians should be held accountable. If they are living ungodly lives, we must help hold them accountable. This includes even our favorite pastors. They cannot, we cannot let them be untouchable. They need to be held accountable for the sake of the church. As Apostle, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I should warn you, I, I am warning you, the world is coming after us in the same way they came after the early church. Listen to this extended quote by Paul Washer. Now, I want you to, I want you to know, he was talking about suffering and persecution way back in 2015. Listen to this. He says this, this is 2015, so six, six, almost seven years, or six years ago. He says this, you will be isolated from society. Does that sound familiar? Anyone who tries to run for office who believes the Bible will be considered a lunatic until we are finally silenced. We will be called things we are not and persecuted not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which, of course, is love and tolerance. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that you won't, be, you won't be persecuted for being followers of Christ, but you will be persecuted for not knowing the true way of Christ. You will go down as the biggest bigots and haters in, of mankind in history. They've already come after your children, and for the most part, and for, for, for most of you, they got them. They got them through public school indoctrination and university indoctrination. And you wonder why your children come out not serving the Lord. It is because you fed them right into the devil's mouth, so little by little the net is closing around, and then it's not little by little. Then he says this, and this is again 2015. He says, Look how fast things are going downhill in just a matter of weeks. I'm not sure what happened that he would say this. But at the same time, know this. Persecution is always meant for evil, but God means it for good. 
It is always better to suffer in this life to have an extra weight of glory in heaven. Now, Christian, we have lived our comfortable American lives for way too long. We have been playing, in the words of Paul Washer, soccer mom and soccer dad. We have been, again in the words of Paul Washer, we have been mesmerized by our trinkets. We have been well thought of in the marketplaces, have we not? We have enjoyed the fruits of American society. We have sent our kids to the best of worldly schools and we have allowed the, the world to shape their thinking. But Christian, this is all coming to an end. We are facing certain persecution unless, of course, unless, of course, you surrender to the worldly agenda. Now, again, listen to Paul Washer. And remember, again, that he spoke these words in 2015. He says this, Down through history, you have the wrong idea of martyrdom and persecution. You think these men, speaking of the martyrs, you think these men were persecuted and martyred for their sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that was the real reason, but no one heard that publicly. Publicly, they were martyred and persecuted as enemies of the state. Child molesters and bigots as narrow-minded, stupid people who had fallen for a ruse and can contribute nothing to society. Your suffering will not be noble, so your mind must be filled with the Word of God when all people persecute you and turn on you, and when the Spirit of God and common grace pulls back and you see even your children and grandchildren tossing in the lot that you should die. He says this is no game. You want revival and great awakening? But know this. For the most part, great awakenings have come only preceding great national uh, catastrophes or the persecution of the church. And he says, I believe that God is bringing a great awakening. I believe that He is raising up young men who are going to trust in the providence of God and be able to wade through the hell that is going to break loose on us and it will be, it will be on us before we even recognize it. Unless in God's providence He's not done. Apart from a great awakening, those things are going to come upon you. Be ready to lose your homes, your cars, and everything. End quote. Church, I don't want to be a downer here, but I have to warn you, the net is tightening around the church. As Washer said, we won't hear the truth about what's really happening. Did you get that? We're not going to hear the truth about what's really happening. The media is not going to tell us the truth. We have to be discerning as we continue to hear reports about Christians as they suffer for the faith. Now, I should tie this back to chapter 5, verse 17. In Paul Washer's quote, he said this, Your suffering will not be noble. So your mind must be filled with the Word of God. Said another way, stop being foolish and understand what the will of the Lord is. That is the answer. The, the Apostle Paul is talking about the sovereign will of God. We must, as a church, we must be able to perceive and comprehend God's sovereign will. 
His sovereign control of all that comes to pass, even the church's suffering. You may recall in Acts 4, 27 and 28, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. You see, evil men gathered against your Lord and your Savior, the Lord of glory, and they put Him to death. But here's the amazing thing. They were gathered along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And verse 28 says this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It was God's will that our Lord die on the cross. It was God's sovereign will that Christ suffered and died at the hands of godless men. And it may very well be that you suffer as well. It may very well be the will of God for you as well. You may suffer wrongly, but if you truly recognize God's sovereign will, then you will know that your suffering will never be in vain. I'm convinced that this is Paul's message to the church at Ephesus. He wants them to be well aware He wants them to be well aware. He wants them to understand that the days are evil. He wants them to understand that the the world is under the control of Satan and the demonic realm. And they're godless men. And they will not stop until they kill you and they kill me. They won't. I'm I'm not overstating this. Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to be well aware of God's sovereign will so that they would be a demonstration to the rulers and authorities that Christ has defeated them. They are a defeated foe. And friends, when that day comes, the day of your suffering, your only comfort will be from the Lord. Your only comfort will be in His Word. Your comfort will come from knowing His will. Believer, you must look to Christ, and this world will become strangely dim. In the words of Martin Luther, if you want to be comforted when your conscience plagues you or when you are in dire distress, then you must do nothing but grasp Christ and in faith say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who suffered and was crucified and died for me. In His wounds and death, I see my sin. In His resurrection, I see the victory over sin, death, and the devil. I see righteousness and eternal life as well. I want to see and hear nothing except for Him. This is true faith in Christ and the right way to believe. End quote. Well, church, in the introduction to the sermon, I said that we would see how to understand God's will for us. In reality, Paul has given the first crucial step to understanding God's will for us as individuals. You know what that is? You must understand God's sovereign will for His people. If we don't understand His will, 
then we're in in danger of never growing up into mature Christians. You know, I started this out with an introduction about Peter Pan and young men who don't grow into maturity. It's tragic when young people don't grow to maturity. But and one thing is for sure, but one thing is for sure Peter Pan Christians are even more heartbreaking, are they not? Not to push this too far, but friends, don't be Peter Pan Christians. Don't be Peter Pan Christians. You know what the most tragic thing about Christians who never grow up? You know what that is? They don't suffer well. They don't suffer well. They they give up too quickly. They they are always the victim. Just listen to Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm sure most of you know her story. Paralyzed from from her teens. Incredible ministry been given over the years she says this god's children are never victims everything that touches their lives he permits the irony is you can't imagine a more victimized person than jesus yet when he died he didn't say i am finished but it is finished he did not play the victim thus he emerged the victor forget the self-pity true True, your supervisor may be trying to push you out of a job. Your marriage may be a fiery trial. You might be living below the poverty level. But victory is ours in Christ. His grace is sufficient. Know this truth and it will set you free. This day, Jesus, I can feel sorry for myself or victorious in you. Show me how to choose the latter. That's, beloved, the words of a mature Christian. That's the words of a Christian who's grown up, who understands God's will. Let me me end by showing you how to avoid this, being a Peter Pan Christian. In Romans 12, 1, Paul exhorts the church at Rome, and by extension, all the brethren. He says this, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Then in verse 2 he says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now if you're listening today, listening today and you're an unbeliever, Maybe you don't believe a word I've said. Maybe you're ready to walk out the door and be one of the ones that talk about us being a lunatic. Friend, I beg you, I beg you to consider Christ Jesus. In Him alone, you will find rest for your weary soul. In Him alone, you will find forgiveness. He alone can take away your guilt. Don't let another moment pass without crying out to Him for salvation. For the believer, I implore you, grow up. Grow up. Seek maturity. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This 
is accomplished by saturating your mind with the Word of God. Absorb yourself with the majesty of the holiness of God. Ponder the glories of Christ. Meditate on the meaning of the cross and on the power of His resurrection. Boast in the splendor of our Lord. Do these things so that you may understand the will of God for your life. So that you don't become a perpetually, perpetually immature Christian. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Pray for this church. Pray that if there be any foolishness going on, that you would cause us to stop. To cause us to, to ponder these days, these evil days. Cause us to recognize your will. Cause us, Lord, to look to the cross. Cause us to meditate on the splendor of our Lord. Your splendor. And your holiness. Cause us to understand, Lord, your will for this world. Your will for your glory and our good. May we live as Christians triumphantly in light of this current age. May we be a demonstration, even here at Grace Gainesville, may we be a demonstration to the rulers and authorities that you have won. Lord, may we be a beacon for the gospel. In Christ's name.